Now, I did forewarn you to make sure that you read chapters 15, 16, and 17, and I give you plenty of notice because I told you on Thursday evening, but I'm quite sure that some of you have forgotten or some of you have been procrastinating and not got round to it, and some of you are here and you didn't even know that, and you may feel a bit lost tonight, but make sure when you go home, if you haven't read these chapters already, that you read them when you go home, and hopefully... Uh, things will be made a bit clearer to you. But what we will do is we'll be going through the chapters tonight and hopefully you'll get the gist of the whole thing as we go through. But to start off with, we read the first chapter, which is the shortest, uh, as we begin these three chapters together tonight. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? Or will men take a pin of it to hang any vessel thereon? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devoureth both ends of it, and the midst of it is burned. Is it meat for any work? Behold, when it was whole, it was meat for no work. How much less shall it be meat yet for any work, when the fire hath devoured it? And it is burned. Therefore thus saith the Lord God. As the vine tree among the trees of the forest. Which I have given to the fire for fuel. So will I give the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. They shall go out from one fire. And another fire shall devour them. And ye shall know that I the Lord. I am the Lord. When I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate. Because they have committed a trespass, saith the Lord God. We read the first few verses of chapter 16. Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, Neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee, thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pity thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee, but thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, Live, I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased, and waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thy hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee, and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger skins, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thine hands, and a chain on thy neck. I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. 
Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and played the harlot because of thy renown, and poured out thy fornications on every one that passed by. His it was. The title tonight that we have for our study is A Vine, A Wife, Two Eagles, and a Twig. And any of you that are preachers and good preachers, and any of you that like listening to preaching will know that illustration is part of the art of preaching. And good illustration is essential to good preaching. The reason that is, is because the illustration, if you like, is the window that shines light upon the truth. In other words, you can tell anybody a theological truth, but if you have the power to illustrate it in some way, you can shine light onto that truth, if you like, then the penny drops and that truth becomes a living reality that they have grasped. The impact of illustration can be seen in much literature, and uh, many of you, I'm sure, are very fond, as I am, of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And that is all, simply, that Pilgrim's Progress is. It's an illustration, an allegory, a representation of the Christian life and the Christian pilgrimage. As Christian himself, that chief character, goes through life, getting saved, his burden rolling away, going through temptations, turmoils, trials, and eventually getting to that celestial city that he has been bound for. But as we go through the Old Testament scriptures, we find that the great prophets of God were arts of the preaching of illustration. Ezekiel is one of the chief of those, and we are going to look at four of his illustrations tonight. He has six in the whole book, but four come together in chapters 15, 16, and 17. But greater than Ezekiel was the greatest preacher of all, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was the absolute epitome of the art of illustration. But we are going to look at Ezekiel this evening, and we see four illustrations that he gives us. An illustration in chapter 15 of a vine. An illustration in chapter 16 of a wife. Then in chapter 17, the first few verses, an illustration of two great eagles and then in the last few verses of chapter 17, an illustration of a twig. So let's look first of all at this parable, an illustration of the unfruitful vine in chapter 15. The history books tell us that a gigantic golden vine decorated the temple gates. As you walk through those temple gates, you would see this great vine and there would be dropping from that vine clusters of golden grapes about six feet tall. And that was there for an illustration to the people of Israel themselves as they walked through the temple gates to worship the Lord. It was a reminder to them of God's true vine, Israel. That they were God's true vine 
And perhaps as they walked through there, they would reminisce as how they were taken out of captivity in Egypt and they were planted as God's true vine in a choice land, in the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. As we go into the New Testament, the Lord Jesus himself five and at least five times uses parables that relate to the figure of the vine. And of course, we know from John chapter 15 that the Lord alluded to himself in the flesh, the Messiah, the Christ as the true vine. And so the imagery of the vine is littered right throughout the Old and the New Testament. There are three things that I want you to note about the vine and indeed Ezekiel's illustration of it this evening. And the first thing is simply this. The vine is a common symbol for the nation of Israel. Within the scriptures, in the Bible, the vine is a symbol and a type of God's people, Israel. Turn with me so as I can prove that to you, to Hosea. You have Ezekiel, then Daniel, and then Hosea, and chapter 10. And we will be looking at a lot of scriptures tonight, so you better wet your fingers as we go through these. Chapter 10 and verse 1. And speaking of the degradation and the emptiness spiritually of Israel, Hosea says, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself, according to the multitude of his fruit. He hath increased the altars according to the goodness of his land. They have made goodly images. Hosea says, Israel is like an empty vine. That's the Old Testament. And I could show you many more instances of that imagery. But then, if you will, go to Matthew chapter 21. You will see how the Lord Jesus Christ takes up this imagery. As he does in many instances. Matthew 21 and verse 33. The Lord speaks and says, again using illustration, a parable. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And if you know that parable, you will know that the Lord begins to illustrate how he, as, as the son of the husbandman, had come in, into that vineyard, Israel. He had come as their Messiah, but he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But what I want you to see is the imagery of the vine in the vineyard, speaking of Israel. Now what we don't want to do tonight in Ezekiel is to confuse much of the vine imagery that there is in the word of God. So what I want to do is I want to break it up into four for you. There are four ways in which Israel is illustrated in the word of God as trees or vines. And the first is this. You find the olive in the word of God. The olive tree. Then on occasions you find the fig tree. Then there is the bramble bush. And then there is the vine that we'll be thinking of tonight. But let's go through these for a moment. You don't need to turn to it. But I'm sure many of you will be familiar with Romans chapter 11. And in Romans 11, the nation of Israel is typified and pictured, illustrated there, as the olive tree. I want you to remember this, or write it down, that the olive tree illustrates and is representatory of Israel's relationship in covenant with God. 
So whenever you read of Israel as the olive tree, God is illustrating the covenant with himself that the people have. Now at the moment, the nation of Israel presently, that covenant is in temporary suspension. In other words, their fellowship with God Almighty has been cut off. They have broken their vows of the covenant, so it's in temporary suspension. And because of that, God has scattered the nation of Israel all over the nations of the world. And it is us, the Gentiles, who are entering into the privileges that Israel might have enjoyed if they had obeyed the Lord, trusted the Savior, and believed on their Messiah. Now, of course, we know from prophetic teaching in the Word of God that there will be a day and a time that will come. Romans 11 teaches us that the nation of Israel will be grafted in again to the vine. And this time, instead of Israel being cut off and the Gentiles being put into that vine, the unfaithful Gentiles will be cut off and Israel once more will be brought into covenant relationship with their God and they will be part of the vine. But what I want you to note tonight is that the olive tree always symbolizes the covenant relationship between Israel and the Lord. Then there is the fig tree. And that speaks of Israel, not in covenant, but Israel as a nation, as a people. If I could put it to you like this, the Jews, that would be a better way to term it. That the fig tree speaks to us of the Jews. Now who are the Jews that the fig tree speaks of? Well, they are the descendants of Benjamin and Judah. The descendants of Benjamin and Judah are the people that made up the population of the city of Jerusalem. You might think in your mind that the city of Jerusalem was just full of Israelites or Jews. Well, well, that's wrong in a sense because it's primarily made up of the descendants of the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. And that is the population of Jerusalem. And that is significant when we remember that it was the population of Jerusalem that the Lord Jesus wept over and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have taken you as a hen gathers her chicks, but ye would not. Now, that's significant. The nation of Israel, the Jews. And that's why when the Lord Jesus passed by that fig tree that failed to bear fruit, he put it underneath the curse of God. And Israel, the nation, the Jews, tonight, this very moment as we speak, are under the curse of God for their unfaithfulness. And there will be no fruit from the nation of Israel until they are restored again by the grace of God. So I hope you see the distinction. The olive tree speaks specifically of Israel in covenant relationship with God. The fig tree speaks specifically of the nation of the Jews if you want to bring it, narrow it in even more. The Jewish people, the descendants of Benjamin and Judah who dwelt in the, the city of Jerusalem in Christ's day. And then thirdly, there's the bramble bush. And this is a very graphic illustration and picture. And it speaks to us the way Israel has become under the divine judgment of God. Because God has cursed the fig tree like the Lord Jesus did as he walked by it that day in Palestine, it has become a bramble bush. It is no longer full of luscious fruit. 
that benefit the nations round about her. Remember, Israel was born that she might shine a light unto the nations, that she might be a witness to the the Gentile world around her, that she might be salt in the earth. But because she has been unfaithful, not obeyed the gospel of her Messiah, she's been cursed by God, and she's become a prickly bramble bush. Very striking symbolism, isn't it? The olive tree of the covenant of God. The fig tree of the nation that is cursed. The bramble bush, that prickly, prickly plant that, that, that is no longer a blessing to the world around, but seems to be a curse as it is cursed. But what Ezekiel speaks to us in chapter 15 this evening of are none of those three, but the vine. And the vine speaks of none of those things, but rather it tells us of Israel looked at as a people in a spiritual relationship with God. The vine speaks of Israel's spiritual relationship with God. And you might say, what's the difference between a spiritual relationship with God and a covenant with God? Well, a covenant with God is a legal thing. It's a material thing in a sense. A real covenant is a piece of paper, black and white, an agreement. And God made an agreement with Israel that day at Mount Sinai. But that's not what we're talking about. Because God had a relationship with men even before that. Because he had a relationship with Abraham before the covenant was ever given at Mount Sinai. We are speaking of the spiritual relationship as God's people. And because of that, the vine should be bringing forth fruit. And from that spiritual relationship, those people that are God's people are to bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to the glory of God. He says in Hosea that he has planted them as a noble vine. He has cared for them. Sorry, Isaiah, I beg your pardon, chapter 5. He has planted the people of Israel as a noble vine. He has cared for them. He has done everything possible for them but there's no fruit from them. So the Lord says, I've done everything possible to make these people a faithful people to me, but there is no fruit coming from them. All the fruit that they have is for themselves. Nothing had changed in Ezekiel's day, and so we are asked to consider the vine from God's standpoint. And that is what we have here, the vine from God's standpoint. That's the first thing I want you to notice. That the vine is the symbol for the nation of Israel within the Bible. Specifically here, it is a symbol for their spiritual relationship with God. Here's the second thing. The only purpose and value that the vine has is to bear fruit. That's vitally important. The only purpose a vine has is to bear fruit. And as you read down this chapter, we don't have time to single out uh, the specific verses, but from round about verse 2 right through to verse 5, you can see how Ezekiel goes through the various uses that, that perhaps maybe a vine tree could have. And he thinks about house building. Well, it's no good for house building because the wood of a vine is too crooked. It's all rickety and crooked. You couldn't build a house with it. The question is asked, could it be used for furniture? Maybe a peg to hammer into the wall, to hang something on. And the answer comes back, no, it couldn't, because it's too soft. Couldn't hammer it into anything. 
Could it be used for fuel? Maybe it's only good enough to be burnt. Well, even when it is burnt, it's not good enough for fuel because it burns so quickly and rapidly. It doesn't linger and smolder for heat. And that proves to us that the only use that a vine has is to bear fruit. Now, the third thing that I want you to notice. Because the vine has refused to perform the only purpose and prescribed duty that God has given it, God will destroy it. That's fundamental to our understanding of chapter 15. God will burn it up if it does not bear fruit. And we've been learning in these studies in Ezekiel that the way in which God is going to burn these people up, his chosen people in relationship to him, is by sending the Babylonians down from the north to come and literally burn the city of Jerusalem. Now let me make an interesting allusion to the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 15, and we're going to spend a bit of time on that a little bit later. But our blessed Lord said, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. I turn with me to Revelation chapter 14 for a moment. And remember, we're not speaking now of believers in this dispensation, yet we're talking about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And that is what we're still talking about in Revelation chapter 14 because the Lord is speaking of that nation here. And he is in fact speaking of God's final dealings in a day yet to come with the apostate nation of Israel. And just before the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Israelites' Messiah, a remnant will be recognized by him. That will happen. Not all Israel will be saved in the sense of the nation and everybody that's a Jew. But true Israel, the true nation of people that will follow God, will be saved. They will say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the Lord will have mercy on them, defeat their enemies and save them. And he will take that remnant and recognize them. And he will plant them again in the land of Palestine. He will plant them one day to become a fruitful vine right throughout the thousand-year reign of the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. But before that, in John, er, John's vision in Revelation 14, John sees a vision of a mighty angel coming forth from the temple which is in heaven. This angel has a sharp sickle in his hand. And John, as he sees this angel coming with the sickle in his hand, he hears another angel commanding the first angel to send forth, verse 18, send forth the sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now, a century and a half before Ezekiel, Isaiah said in chapter 5 of his book and verse 2 in the parable of the vineyard, he looked that it should bring forth grapes. God looked for fruit from the nation of Israel and it brought forth wild grapes. Not fruit, but wild grapes. Now stop for a minute and pause. Here's a principle that we must learn as believers in this age. That this and what we're going to read in Revelation is the awful condition and description of a people in complete 
disregard and obedience to God's word. A people who reject his son, a people who reject their Messiah and their Lord, and a people who will fail to recognize the Lordship of Christ. So let's look at what happens to them. If you scan your eye down the chapter, you will find this. That that angel does take the sickle, and he thrusts it into the earth, and he gathers those wild grapes of the earth, and he casts them into a wine press. And it says that Christ, the great judge and warrior of God, he presses down those grapes in the great wine press of the wrath of God. That wine press is trodden outside the city. And as we read down this passage, we find that that, that wine comes out of the press like blood. In fact, it is blood. And this passage says that even the bridles of the horses feel the blood coming up to their level. That the blood goes as far as 600 furlongs. You know how far 600 furlongs is? The whole length of the land of Palestine. And there is a day coming when Christ will return as the judge and the victorious king and he will come to the nation of Israel and he will take his sickle and he will pluck up all those wild grapes that have not borne proper fruit for him and he will tread in his wrath and the whole nation land will be drenched with their blood. Is it any wonder that it's called the trouble of Jacob? Do you marvel that it is called the great tribulation that the world has never seen before and then God's wrath will be poured out upon his vine? Now after this, the Son of Man descends to take his kingdom. He descends to reign upon the earth and he recognizes a a small remnant as his own vine and he will place them in the land again and for a thousand years there will be a presence to glorify God in his vineyard once more. But what about today? Today, the Lord as he wept over Jerusalem and said, oh, I would have brought you to myself, but you would not. The Lord finished those remarks by saying, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Let me say this before we move on to the second parable. There are two things that are needed for a vine to bear fruit. Just two things. The first is that a vine needs to be pruned. And the second thing is that it needs to abide. Ezekiel chapter 15 and verse 3, we see that the vine needs to be pruned. The Lord says, shall wood be taken thereof to do any work, or will men take a pin of it to hang any vessel thereon? In other words, you have to cut this vine up. You have to abide in the vine. And I want us to turn to John chapter 15, because this teaching is found by our Lord in this chapter chiefly. The Lord says in verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Pruning. Maybe you've pruned the roses. Well, 
If you prune vines, that's how the fruit comes. You have to keep pruning it or the fruit will not come. Now, it's not a very pleasant experience. No one likes cutting something that we think is going to bring forth fruit. It doesn't seem to make sense to cut the very life until the sap comes out and we feel that we're doing violence to life when we do that. Of course, we know when we see the fruit blooming the next year that that is not the case. But pruning is a painful thing. It's a painful experience, but it's necessary to bring forth new life. And this is a spiritual principle. In our lives as believers, as God's people today, pruning is necessary to bring forth fruit in our lives. Now let's take a moment over this. Because I think there are some folk here this very night and God is pruning you. Job knew what it was to be pruned. If you turn to Job... Job, just before the Psalms, in chapter 14, he describes pruning himself. Job 14, and verse 7 to 9. He says, There is hope of a tree if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant. Doesn't matter whether the root's rotting, doesn't matter whether it, fruit, it fruits, falls to the ground and rots. If it's pruned, it'll get the water. Now that's what Job said, but then Job had to go through that experience. And if you turn to chapter 17 of Job and verse 1, he describes what he felt like when he was in the middle of that pruning experience. He says, my breath is corrupt, my days are extinct, and the grave's ready for me. Have you ever felt like that? You felt as if you're loathsome to other people, your breath. You felt as if no one wants you, your days are corrupt, you feel extinct, nobody wants you, and you feel that you'd rather die, maybe you feel you're, you're going to die. But let me tell you what happens. That's pruning that is so painful. But if you turn to chapter 42 of this book. Chapter 42 and verse 11 and 12. And you know what happened to Job in the interim. That he lost his, his family. He lost his outhouses. He lost his farm, his buildings. His, he lost his children. He lost his cattle. He, he even lost the, the confiding of his wife and his friends. But here in chapter 42, in verse 11 and 12, Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. He had bread, but he was starving. He has a house, but his house came down around him. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. Now that is what pruning does. Pruning is necessary to bring forth fruit in our lives. But what do we do? <laughs> Let's be honest tonight. What do we do when we're pruning? We resist it. Oh Lord, what are you doing that for? Lord, is there not another way? Is there not an easier way? 
We curl up like the hedgehog in fear. We, we don't want it to touch us. Lord, who let this into my life? Lord, why am I suffering? And we resist God breaking us. And for you who are being broken, I want you to turn to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a Bible study, so let's keep the book speaking. 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, and here's the answer why we are pruned as believers. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. We have this treasure, and that's the life of God, in earthen vessels, that's our body. The life of God is in our body that's like a clay pot. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us, we are troubled on every side. Yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Why are there cracks in your clay pot, my friend? That the life of Jesus may flow through. You see it? If you're not pruned, there'll be no fruit. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. No, that means them that are exercised thereby. It means this. Whether you bear fruit or not will depend on how you're looking at your pruning. How do you see it? Is it God being cruel? Is it the devil attacking you? Maybe it is. Like Joel, but is God allowing it for your pruning? Oh, if you could only see that you're suffering tonight, my friend, because God wants you to be a chief saint. And he wants the cracks in your body, the cracks in your personality and your soul to, to be the cracks through which he seeps his life to the world around. Pruning is necessary for fruit. But secondly, abiding is also very necessary. And these children of Israel willard because they did not abide in their covenant relationship with God. Isn't that plain? They didn't abide in, in the vows that they took. And you can see that in verse 8 of chapter 15. But what I want you to do is see the Lord's words in John 15 that I hope you, you're at at the moment. In verse 4, he says, Abide in me. Abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye accept Ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him the same, bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. The principle applies to us today. No pruning, no fruit. No abiding, no fruit. And here's the greatest tragedy of all. No fruit, no testimony. That's what happened to Israel. There was no testimony to the nations anymore for God. And there was no testimony, no fruit. That branch had to be cut away. What's our fruit, Galatians? Love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, temperance. Is the fruit there? Come on now. For if the fruit's there, the life will be there. Oh, our time's slipping away. We've ten minutes or so. Let's look at the second parable before we go, because this is a tremendous one. Sixty-three verses in this chapter, the longest chapter in the book of Ezekiel, and indeed the longest parable in the whole of the Bible. Let's go back to Ezekiel this time, chapter 16. Now, Ezekiel, I'm sure you've noticed up till now in our studies, has a knack of seeing things as they really are. And he doesn't mince his words, and he doesn't do it here. And what Ezekiel is seeking to do is to tear down the misconception of Jerusalem the golden. But rather, in this chapter, you will be horrified to find he is describing Jerusalem the harlot. The story is of an adopted girl who becomes a prostitute. As you read down through this chapter, you will see some sort of detail. Indeed, the rabbi, uh, Eliezer ben Harakanus, in the Mishnah, the Jewish teaching book, says this, that this chapter should not be read in public and it should not be translated in public. It's so sordid. In fact, the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon when he lived in Victorian England, of course, felt that, he, I quote, a minister could scarcely read this in public. If you go home and read this, it's certainly very interesting reading because there's no decorum at all in this passage. There's no holes barred. Everything is just let loose. And this lustful tirade of iniquity, of prostitution, and it's from God. These words are from God. But you see, that's the whole point. If we miss the, the, the terror and the tragedy and the abhorrence of, of these words, we miss God's point. Because Ezekiel is not wanting to be polite about the sins of God's people. In fact, this is what his job is. And this is what the job of a prophet is. To come to the people of God and to expose their sin. And to expose it in all of its ugliness. Because it is abhorrent to God. And God wants us to know it's abhorrent. God had found in a field an abandoned little baby. It was despised, it was abandoned, it was lying dying, a little baby girl, and her name was Israel. And God graciously lifted up that little child and adopted it, that little ragtag girl, lying in its own blood without its umbilical cord cut yet. It hadn't been washed, it had never been cradled. And God lifted it. And that was very strange in those days. We don't think anything strange. If you went out to Thorndike Street and saw a child lying on the street in blood, you would lift it too. But not in those days. Because if you lifted every child you saw lying in blood, your house would be bursting at the seams. Especially little girls. They weren't a breadwinner. They were no use to some families as far as they were concerned. And they were frequently left out in the street to die. But the Lord lifted her up. And when she became of age, he entered into the marriage bond with her. Now that would astound people of this day too because if a man actually did pick up a baby like this, it wasn't to care for it, it was to let her grow up and then make her a prostitute and get gain through. But for a man to pick up a child like this and love that child and actually enter into the covenant of the right of marriage was astounding. But what happened is tragic. God dressed her 
God put the most beautiful clothes on her, adorned her with the most costly jewels, provided the finest food available for his beloved. And in verse 15, you read these tragic words. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty and played the harlot because of thy renown and poured out thy fornications on every one that passed by, his it was. And that orphan spurned the love of God, the faithfulness of God. She became vain and proud and eventually she became a common harlot on the streets. And that intolerable action against her husband could not go unpunished. Now why could it not? Because the passage tells us that her husband wasn't just her lover, but her husband was the judge in the town. And he had to be seen to do right, not in society alone, but in his very own house. So he delivered over this harlot to her murderous lovers and let them abuse her, let them punish her. And her wickedness by this time had surpassed even her older sister, Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom that had already been judged by God from the Assyrians. Also her younger sister named as Sodom. Sodom? Israel's sin, Judah's sin, Jerusalem's sin had exceeded the sin of Sodom. And after he had chastened her, the miracle of it all is this, God would restore her. And God would bring her back to himself. Why? Because he made a promise. Hundreds of years before to the father of the nation Abraham. And when God makes a promise, God keeps it. It's an astounding story, isn't it? The interesting thing about it is that in the story, the Lord basically says in his own terms, you're only a chip off the old block. He says your father was a Hittite. Or your, I think it's your father was a Hittite and your mother was a, an Amorite. Now how is that in Israel? How could that be possible? It can be possible simply because the Hittites and the Amorites used to reside in what, what is now the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem used to be a pagan city before the conquest into Canaan land. And what the Lord is saying is this, you've gone back to your roots, Jerusalem. My people... You're like the Canaanites that you were meant to have wiped out of the, the whole of the promised land. But you're going back to their wicked, evil practices. And then he says, you have broken my marriage vow. And the marriage vow that Israel made with God was at Mount Sinai when God ratified his covenant with Israel. But they had broken it. And then it talks about this woman being clothed in beauty and garments and jewels. And that's, this is all Israel's history right from the start to the end. And that's talking about the reign of David and the reign of Solomon. You remember the Queen of Sheba came and she said, The half has not been told. The riches, the gold. And then a tragedy comes in because Solomon and his wealth builds temples to the false gods of his foreign wives. And then you have the sins of Ahaz and Manasseh of idolatry. And even in chapter 16 and verse 20, you read about child sacrifice. They were offering their children to Molech. Now you might know and be familiar with the story of Hosea and his wife. And if you think she's bad, she was only a promiscuous woman. But this woman in this chapter is far more depraved than all that. I mean, when you read this, it's absolutely astounding. It literally says she sleeps with anyone. And the language of lust in this chapter is terrible. And the Lord says, Jerusalem, you're not even like a normal prostitute. This is what God says. 
For a normal prostitute gets money for what she does. But you pay. You pay to be a prostitute. Isn't it amazing? In fact, I'm sure many prostitutes do what they do for material gain. But not her. Israel did what she did for the sin itself. She was insatiable in her lust. And if you read the history of Israel, you will find that that she sought security in all her nations, making alliances, and didn't trust God. Now, I want to deal with this, so please bear with me as we finish tonight. What was the reason for all this impurity? Why does God need to go into this like this? Verse 49, look at it. God tells them the start of all this terrible sin. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. And he says, you've got worse than her. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness were in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Note another translation, the way it puts it. You were arrogant, you were overfed, and you're unconcerned. Arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. You know what that is? Put it in another word. Materialism. My friend, that's the way we ought to preach today. We ought to be exposing sin. And let's ponder for a moment as we close in the last couple of minutes. And bear with me tonight. What is the cross? I believe the church should stop trying to please people and start trying to win people. Save them. And the cross is the most bloody, gruesome demonstration and illustration of sin and what sin does. And when we look at the cross, we feel our ugliness, we feel our sinfulness, and even when we apply that bloody sacrifice, praise God, it's efficacious to our atonement. Now please rejoice with me as you look at these verses as as we close. As you look at verse 53 to 59, you know what God says? He says, I'm going to restore Sodom. I'm going to restore Samaria. I'm going to restore Jerusalem. I'm going to restore all that plain. It's amazing. And God is talking about what the Bible talks as the times of restitution of all things spoken of by God's holy prophets. Even Sodom and her daughters would be restored. Now it's not talking about the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. For as Jude tells us, they're suffering the vengeance of eternal fire at this moment in time. But the miracle of God's grace and what God is going to do in the future is this. God is going to raise from the ashes Sodom and Gomorrah as cities. And God is going to put into them a regenerated people in the millennial reign of Christ to worship him. How do I know that? Because Sodom and Gomorrah are found in the area that Abraham was promised right in the very beginning. It's amazing, isn't it? That although they forgot their legal covenant with God made at Sinai, God couldn't forget his covenant, his unconditional covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And let me say this as we finish. Listen to this, believer. That applies to us. You know what? We've entered into the blessings. Paul could say, know ye not? That the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be ye not deceived? neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, 
nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, perfect redemption. The purchase of God. To every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus. A pardon received. Praise the Lord. I had much more to tell you. Two more parables to get through, but you come back next week and you can hear all about those. He's a wonderful saviour, isn't he? It's amazing when you think of it. Sodom and Gomorrah rain down with brimstone from heaven. But there's a day coming when even those wicked sinful places will be restored by the grace of God to praise him. And you know something? We might live in a Sodom and Gomorrah, but our old lives were no different. But he's made out of them trophies of grace. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you tonight. We thank you for amazing grace. How sweet the sight that saved our wretch like me. And Father, help us to be taken up with the wonder of it all that he has put away our sins forever by the blood of his cross. Glory to his name tonight and bless us now as we leave. Amen.